0: Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hi, I'm Corey Martin, a customer solutions architect at Heroku. We're talking today about building a startup in a highly regulated industry. Joining me is Brian Woods, CTO of Rhino, a company in New York City that's making housing more accessible. Brian, welcome to Kodish.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I want to start with um, what Rhino is.
1: Sure. So Rhino is an insurance alternative to security deposits. Uh, So basically, where we're based in New York City, the average security deposit for an apartment is about $3,000. And instead, we allow renters to, instead of putting up that cash uh, to cover one month's rent, which is typical here in New York, Mm. they can enroll in an insurance policy to cover their landlord for the same sorts of things that uh, a security deposit would cover, which is usually loss of rent and uh, excessive damage to the apartment, um, for a low-cost insurance policy, which would... Usually, in that case, cost about ten to fifteen dollars a month.
0: Wow. So rather than thousands upfront, it's a low monthly fee
1: exactly. It uh, really just helps people reduce their upfront moving costs and you know, put that money towards their savings or a vacation or you know anything else that they want or moving costs, honestly
0: with this being a fairly new concept, is that right? is that or has this been offered in the past?
1: Attempts at uh, bringing insurance to security deposits have existed since the 90s. Um, but what's really happened since we came into the market a few years ago is that uh, we've really built the first product that um, is being used at all. Um, so there's kind of the the framework that every other uh, business that tried to apply insurance to save uh, renters this money uh, often charge something like between 17 and 20% of one month's rent uh, as a one-time payment, so you know um, if my rent's a thousand dollars a month, I have to pay something like two hundred dollars. It's non-refundable. Um, you know, I think the reason that these things didn't work so much in the marketplace is it doesn't really feel like when you choose something like that that you're really getting away with paying a deposit. You know, that's honestly more expensive than our highest cost plans tend to be. Um, And also, since you don't have the flexibility to pay it monthly, you know, it's certainly a reduced payment. But at that point, you know, renters start saying, Oh, you know, but I'm never going to get this $200 back. So I should probably go ask my parents or somebody to help me (laughs) cover the rest of the cash, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to be able to make that upfront payment. Um, So the reason things have really changed in the last few years is we um, really took kind of like, you know, the Netflix or subscription model of just, you know. I'm a good renter, so are 98% of good renters. Um, There's no reason this thing can't be a lot cheaper, um, especially for that $1,000 of rent that's kind of more typical in the middle of the country and in the South. Um, You know, our plans can be as low as $3 a month. And that really, really changes the calculus for renters where, you know, I'm not paying a few hundred dollars up front instead of a thousand. I'm paying something like three bucks, Uh, you know, and then if my lease is over in 12 months, then I've paid thirty six dollars in premium um, as opposed to a thousand dollars that I now have to go, you know, chase my landlord and and try to get back fast enough so that I can use it to move into my next apartment.
0: So you're entering these industries that don't have a reputation for having a low barrier for entry, insurance, real estate. And you're a startup in New York. So how did you first approach these large insurance companies, these large real estate companies with your idea?
1: Sure. So, I mean, to back up even a little bit more, um, you know, I didn't even realize that what we were building at first was an insurance product. You know, I think (laughs) that um, through our market research in real estate, we knew that this number was about right, like 98% of the time a renter puts up all this money is good, does nothing, doesn't damage the apartment or anything, you know, and then moves out. And then, you know, we have to do this all over again when they move into their next apartment. So it was only really when we started thinking about, you know, what was the mechanism by which we could, I don't know, front the money or, you know, get ourselves into this transaction that it became very clear once we started talking to lawyers that, um, you know there's a word for what you're doing when when you're insuring against some kind of risk and that word is insurance and you know you're gonna have a lot of troubles if you don't uh, go down that path um mm. so my other partner uh, ben lantos um came from goldman sachs and in investment banking and you know um he had to do a kind of a crash course in insurance uh, become licensed himself um get our company uh license as uh as a agent who can sell insurance and um, from there, yeah, it was really, really interesting. We um, kind of shopped this around to a bunch of different people and we weren't sure at first what we were really looking at either because those those two things that I mentioned earlier about making this product a lot cheaper and then offering the monthly plan um, made this truly in, uh, an innovative product in the insurance space. I know people throw away the word or throw around the word innovation a lot with startups, uh, but this was a novel policy that people didn't know how to price. Um, they didn't really know what the risk looked like. Um, so you know, we could say all day long that people are good you know, insurance is a good solution for this. We think we can keep premiums low. Um, but it was a number of things. The first was that, you know, we just went out and did some actuarial analysis to go along with sort of our market research. And we found that basically compared to most insurance businesses, uh, ours has a much higher likelihood of being profitable. I mean, if you think about, auto insurance, uh, you know, it takes one car wreck to to zero out the premiums you've collected on a whole bunch of policies. Um, renter's insurance, which is obviously much closer to what we do, um, is even worse. You know, you pay $5 a month for renter's insurance and your laptop gets stolen at a coffee shop, you know, and you, mm-hmm. again, 200 other policies get zeroed out. Um, so this is sort of the mechanism that we were using when we were talking to the uh, insurance backers. And we were lucky to find one at first that was sort of a you know, big reputable, but sort of boutique, uh, insurance agency who was our first backer, um, that had an appetite for this stuff. They have a little bit of, um, excitement around insure tech as this, as a space. Um, there's a number of other insure tech companies that are doing things like better prediction for wildfires, uh, using things like aerial photographs. Um, Mm -hmm. same thing with coastal floods, um, trying to find ways to just sort of better price these policies. Um, So that's really what we were able to do. We found our first backer um, and we got licensed in our first couple states. And it's been kind of a process that uh, goes on for forever. You know, as we write business state by state, the regulations change in each state. Uh, We kind of choose which market we are going to operate in. Uh, and now we have a few different insurance backers. And, um, you know, it it's sort of it becomes easier and easier, obviously. I think that as this space gets more defined and more people get more interested in it and as we write more policies, uh, people are clearly seeing that uh, we were right now that we're three years down the line and that these things are profitable in terms of unit economics. Um, but it still means that um, you know, each, each time that we roll into a new state, it kind of becomes a matter of you know, what is the actual insurance paper we're going to write this on look like? What is the policy um, you know, and, and who's going to back it? And then for the real estate angle, um, it's similar. But uh, what we've really seen is that you know, in New York, we're selling to these big landlords, we tend to to reach out to um, partners who have portfolios of at least 1000 units or more, Uh, our sweet spot is really more like the 10,000 to 20,000 unit Uh, portfolio. And, you know, that's similar to selling, I don't know, enterprise software, where you're doing kind of long B2B sales cycles. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that, we kind of build a lot of custom software. um, And we've built a product that's sort of flexible for those needs. But what surprised me as we've rolled out the the company and grown it nationally, is that the product that works, you know, in a luxury high rise in New York City, works just as well for a single-family home in Texas that might have rent of 450 or $500 a month. You know, at the end of the day, no matter where you're living, um, it's good to save upfront costs and keep money in your pocket. And mm-hmm. no matter who you are as a person, no matter how much you make or where you live, um, it's no more or less likely that you're going to pay your rhino bill and, you know, be respectful to the property that you live in.
0: It's really interesting. And you used a word that I've never heard, which is Insure tech. Um, so that sort of reminded me, when a, you think of insurance, it's a very old industry, goes way back. Um, I'm really curious how technology has enabled Rhino to work within this space.
1: Totally. I think that's a really great question. And I think that, um, you know, one thing that I think is really different about startups for me, I mean, I've been doing startups for 15 years now or something, is um, two things. One is that the scope of the problems that we're able to solve in startups is so much more broad than before. I mean, my first successful startup I worked for was basically an upload button. You know, if I wanted <laughs> yeah. to upload a photo, but I didn't want to post it on Facebook, but it, you know, it was too big to send over email oh, great, there's a startup that can do this now. So it's been kind of crazy over my career to just see us all really as technologists taking on bigger and bigger problems. Um, and the insure tech space itself is sort of interesting because I think that, you know, you think of these big incumbents, the state farms of the world, you know, billion-dollar companies uh, move slowly, you know, aren't willing, yeah, at least my my stereotype of them in my mind when I got started was, you know, aren't willing to take on Huge new risks or try new things, um, and honestly, I think that's kind of true. I think insure tech, uh, as a space for the last ten years, has really been more about, oh, how can I sell renters insurance to millennials? You know, how do I make a really slick app to sell the same old product over and over and over again? Um, and that's sort of, you know, it's actually done okay for itself. There's a number of really well funded and um, insure tech startups that are, you know, on the IPO track that are really just doing that, you know, we want to be uh, Geico for millennials, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but this newer kind of track of, of startups that are doing things like I mentioned before of, you know, using, you know, machine learning and, and really big data to figure out how to better price things, how to offer insurance for uh, people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get it. And I kind of think that we're more along this line. Um, And then getting into the space in terms of technology was a little bit interesting because we were able to write our first policies without doing anything like outlandish in terms of technology. You know, I spent my nights and weekends before we raised our seed round building our first web products. You know, we needed a portal for landlords to be able to go in and file claims. We needed uh, an application process that could run some basic data uh, on renters to make sure that, you know, run a credit check, accurately price their policy. Um, you know, this isn't groundbreaking, like rocket science stuff. It has its own challenges. Um, but what I've been really excited about um, in the insure tech space is sort of how, you know, if you can build core technology that sound, um, the sky is really the limit, you know, we'll always need to be able to provide our renters more and like better and better pricing. Um, We need to be able to, you know, provide audit reports to regulators on a moment's notice that are ever more accurate and ever more speedy. That's to say nothing about, um, to go back for a second about, um, you know, just startups in general is that we feel like we're this new kind of startup that, wants to embrace regulation. You know, I think that we're coming out of um, a decade of, you know, not, I mean, I will name names, I guess, but, you know, the Ubers and Airbnbs of the world that just, you know, took growth at all costs, uh, transformed cities. I think there's, you know, obvious pros and cons, but, you know, basically we're able to push things through so quickly that now, regulators have had to find ways to figure out, you know, what are we going to do with this? You know, can we just put this whole market to rest or, you know, what are we going to do? So our approach has been kind of the opposite from the very beginning is we want to work with regulators. You know, we actually are about housing affordability. We want to make a product that works for renters primarily, but also works for landlords, works for, uh, you know, <laughs> municipalities and their, uh, their legislatures. And, You know, to us, housing is such an important part of community um, that we need to be able to play by the book. Um, So that's sort of where we focused. And I think that by just using simple tools and focusing on okay, how do we make sure that our data is sound and reportable? And, um, you know, that we're doing everything above board, focusing on that kind of technology rather than, you know, whatever the buzzword of the day has really allowed us to not only scale the business, but build trust within the market.
0: Let's explore that. So you mentioned you have a range of startup experiences from an upload button (laughs) to now insurance. Um, And when you came in as, as CTO, how did you make decisions about what your stack would be? What do we build in? Where do we start?
1: Sure. So I think I have two answers to that. I mean, the first is, yeah, I worked on an upload button. I um, spent four years at a dating website that grew to a few million users very, very quickly. Uh, I spent a year at Samsung working on smart TVs, and then I built some mobile applications in fashion. Um, So yeah, I've, I've been sort of all over the place. And I think that it was interesting. This was my first time that I was able to choose the core technology myself. You know, nobody else cared what I was going to build the first uh, MVPs in, what we were kind of shipping to investors. Um, so my first answer is an easy one, which is just that over those fifteen years, I had been using Ruby on Rails almost exclusively in my day job. I think you know I have explored and assessed and loved other technologies, and you know. For a number of reasons, just like any other developer, I think, to keep my brain sharp and to keep myself, you know, from sinking into boredom and that kind of thing. Um, But it was a mixture of, you know, I have now done Ruby on Rails for 15 years. It's clearly, uh, at that point, you need a good reason not to use something you have so much uh, skill in.
0: Um,
1: But at the same time, you know, using Ruby on Rails, uh, choosing Heroku, um, choosing to use sort of project-based architecture is sort of the, the word we use around here. Instead of thinking about monoliths versus microservices, just thinking of, you know, what is this product or what is this project I'm working on? Let's start there. And, you know, we can break things out as we need. That was sort of all very easy decisions for me. I mean, I think I needed to show something to investors that showed that I knew what I was doing and that we could get this product off the ground. So I reached for the tools that I knew and loved and you know pushed my Git repo that I was working on up to Heroku. Basically I made these decisions without ever really thinking about them. Um, but what I've been very pleased with is that I've never had a moment where I've had to sit back and think about how to re-architect any of this stuff or how to ever make it scale. Um, even though you know, the business has been growing 10X year over year over year now, um the technologies we've chosen have scaled with us you know both in terms of you know raw performance and architecture but also as i've grown the team so i think that um you know being able to hire rails engineers has been amazing there's plenty of them they're often great uh the culture is one of you know uh excitement but increasingly more pragmatic it's just this trusted technology the one difference for me in terms of of actual tool is that um You know, again, I've been using Rails inside and out for 15 years. I want to make sure that I'm not blind to new technologies. So we've also built an external API that powers some of those listing sites I mentioned before, where you can search our inventory to see if a, if a, you know, an apartment that you're listing on your listing site is deposit free, you can query Mm -hmm. our API to do it. Some of our partners are using it to um, tie into their property management systems to invite renters in in near real time to uh, rent at their places. Um, That external API, we chose Elixir in Phoenix. And that's been exciting to me because even though we don't churn on that API as, as frequently as we do on the other main applications, we at least have this fun space to kind of explore and and test out a new um, a new technology that we might embrace more in the future. It's also honestly served us really, really well. So I think that, you know, just choosing kind of a mixture of boring, but good, fun technologies that we don't ever have to worry about. Oh, no, what, what Frankenstein monstrosity have we built? Sure. Okay, now that we've raised the Series A, it's time to scrap out that MVP that we built and spend a year rebuilding everything from scratch. Um, you know, I don't foresee us ever having to do that. So I'm feeling increasingly like they were the right choices.
0: For those who have not worked in Rails, I've also worked in it for a long time, it was my first web framework. Yep. But for those who haven't, why Rails? Like, how has Rails enabled you to do this project-based architecture where everything is really purpose-built, and you're not refactoring everything, you know, once a month?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, it's funny because I think it has the it has a reputation of, of being kind of a of a toy that you grow out of, um, and that absolutely has not been my case. I mean. Um, so, you know, for people who haven't used Ruby on Rails, I honestly believe it's the best web framework that exists. I think that, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there was this big push in the Ruby community where people are saying, you know, Ruby, not Rails. Like, Ruby is this beautiful language. It has its own merits. Yes, Rails is a great framework, but let's focus on this beautiful Ruby thing. And it's true. Ruby is an expressive language, uh, you know, if you're kind of code golfing, it often takes very few lines to get things done. Um, it The performance story for Ruby has come huge, huge stride since I started 15 years ago. I mean, 15 years ago, it was honest to God, like maybe the slowest language you could choose. And now if you benchmark it against other, you know, dynamic uh, languages that are similar, like Python or PHP or Perl, um, you know, it's increasingly better, I think, in many benchmarks that outperforms those, but it's at least in the same ballpark. So there's no reason to say, oh, you know, I would use Ruby, but it's too slow, so therefore I'm gonna use PHP or Python. Um, and then in terms of web framework, I just think uh, it's a mixture of things, kind of like my own business. Rails started with some core principles that are honestly outstanding. This thing called convention over configuration, which gives people Some sorts of people who are new to it, some headaches where you have to name things a specific way, you have to uh, name files and place them on the file system in a correct place for Rails to kind of pick them up and find them. Um, But once you just kind of understand those patterns and you just kind of use them by default, um, the strides you make are huge. Um, We've been able to bring up some people uh, primarily from the Node.js world, which I think is very similar. You know, you're building sorts of Obviously, web applications in a dynamic language. Um, but you know the people who have more of like a node and express backward or background on my team are often surprised when we start looking through their pull requests and and offering feedback and code review that, oh hey, you know uh, you don't actually need an uh, external library for this. Rails provides it. or mm. oh hey, you know, if you just frame this slightly differently, uh, Rails provides this whole other way of doing it, and then you know this hundred lines that you just wrote. Uh, gets refactored into two. Um, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And it's something that I kind of take for granted as a long time Rails person. And then, yeah, getting into the scalability stuff. I mean, 10 years ago, Twitter had all these scalability problems and they rewrote the product in Scala. And that sort of burned Rails' reputation for building high performance websites. But it's great. Uh, you know, they have a WebSockets framework for real time stuff. Uh, lots of people build JSON backed APIs. So it's not just for spitting out, you know, server rendered HTML. We use react and, and all that, you know, TypeScript and all the new fancy JavaScript stuff on top of it. And it works great. Um, so to me, it's just this great mixture of, at this point, it's a very, very proven solid technology that, uh, has proven itself, there's a library for everything once you need it. Um, But it still has that startup feeling of you fly with it and you can get stuff done.
0: Well, I'm sold, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) So um, how did you pick your hosting platform?
1: It's so funny. I think that... um, had I ever had a moment where I was going to think, oh, you know what? Now that Rhino is the serious business and we're making money and we've raised all this money and everything, and we're growing a team, now's the time when I need to build a you know real serious platform and I need to choose a real serious host. Had I looked at it that way, I still would have chosen Heroku. And I'll maybe get to that in a second. But the funny thing to me is I I never chose it. Uh, I was, again, building this product in my nights and weekends before it was even a real thing. I just had some Rails apps on my computer. You know, I wanted to share where I was with my co-founders. I wanted a staging environment and a production environment so I could test things that, you know, wouldn't break the demos that they were giving to investors. And what I've now done for more than a decade is just, oh, I need to put this on this Rails app on the Internet great. I know Heroku is a wonderful tool to do that. I literally just get push what I'm working on and then it's online in two minutes. Um, so I just did that. Um, and the thing that I think people are surprised by who maybe haven't used Heroku is that it's an amazing tool for that, but then there's never that moment where Heroku becomes not the right tool, right? So as we've yeah. grown up and as the team has grown from us three co-founders to the 50-plus people we are now, and the 100 it probably will be by the end of the year, and the customers have grown from, you know, none to several to many, there's never been a moment of, oh, God, oh, now we need to grow up and, and you know, build our own custom infra on AWS or whatever. And in fact, the opposite has happened. Um, uh, when we got started, AWS gave us a ton of free credits um, to use, like tons of money. Um, and I thought as a cost-saving measure, maybe it would make a lot of sense to move like our databases out to AWS just to save like a hundred bucks a month on, on hosting. That ended up being a fool's errand because, you know, once we got established, we lost those startup credits. And then we had to do a, a project to move <laughs> move those databases back into Heroku. Uh-huh. And in those two years that it had been between when, you know, those databases were first on Heroku, back out to AWS, and then back into Heroku, the tooling and stuff that Heroku has built uh, for Postgres changed dramatically. And if I had known that these tools had existed, it would have been completely worth it. So we have, you know, all these tools, we've built a data warehouse, Um, we have... You know, we can now roll back to any arbitrary point in time. We have these automated backups. We have these great metrics dashboards. All this stuff that we would have otherwise had to invest time and resources—if not building our own, then tying all these third-party services together—it would just be silly. You know, we're not an infrastructure business. I'm all about you know saving people upfront costs when they rent apartments. You know, so yeah. um, the more that we can just rely on Heroku's platform, the uh, the better. Um, which is to say nothing about things that we've been getting into more and more. Um, you know, we just opened our first ticket to talk to cloud solutions architects at Heroku. Um, you know, as the product grows and scales, we increasingly have more challenges that aren't just as simple as, you know, oh, add some caching here, speed sure. up this database query, make sure there's no n plus one queries. Um, so it's been amazing. We're this we're using the Heroku Enterprise platform, and it's been cool to just get on calls with with architects and say hey, we have this track of work we're going to do maybe two weeks from now, but could you take a look at this, uh, provide any insight that you have, maybe things that are you know core to the Heroku platform that we should be looking at so that when we get to that next sprint, we already have an idea of where we should start.
0: That's great. And that, I mean, I've had a similar experience with Heroku where I started with it alone in my living room, launching side apps or totally. working on a business. And then your needs grow and there's Heroku Enterprise and solutions for scaling and planning a more complex architecture on the platform it's sort of the full spectrum but so many of us like you started with heroku as individual developers in our spare time which i think is really unique
1: i totally agree i totally agree and i think i mean also it's not like we're paying that much more for heroku i feel like i often meet with other engineers at startups who have these you know, months long projects where they're trying to cut their AWS bill, you know? So um, I I honestly think that for what we would pay elsewhere, we're like just actually getting, you know, a more robust product to build on. So yeah, I I just think that, um, you know, even if I had built a bunch of stuff custom on AWS or Google cloud or something, I'd still at this stage be looking at Heroku as a thing to migrate our platform to, just because, you know, the resources I can take advantage of are, are incredible.
0: So Brian, I can hear the passion in your voice for helping <laughs> renters. And yep. you've accomplished that by sort of shaking up a regulated industry and introducing something new. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur looking to create change in a regulated space?
1: Yeah. So I think regulated spaces are actually the most exciting place to start new startups. Um, I think that, if nothing else, the barrier to entry and the moat that you build around yourself once you get through all the red tape is really kind of an incredible thing. I mean, look, it took us almost three years to get where we are where you know i'm I'm talking about this. we're you know helping laws get passed in Cincinnati. all this stuff is happening. You know it was it was a grind getting this thing off the ground. I think that, um, you know, we needed big landlord partners to agree to use it. We had to get actual insurance backers. We had to find ways to get the data together to, you know, write these policies. We had to get state regulators on board. Um, It was not easy. And it went really counter to my experience of build something cheaply and fast, get it off the ground, get it in front of customers um, and iterate. You know, that is my bread and butter and it's what I know how to do. So to be honest, it was, it was, um, I wouldn't say it was frustrating, but it was challenging at times for that first year of just, oh man, I'm not building anything yet. We need to find ways to just like get our business valid on paper first, you know? And it also wasn't the cheapest thing. I think going back to my silly upload button example, you know, that's something that you can build an entire business from the ground up in your living room if you want to and decide how big you want to grow it. Um, You know, before I was able to write a line of code or, you know, accept our first renter, we had to jump through a bunch of hoops. Um, so, and, you know, that's not without cost. Like we had to hire lawyers, you know, and and it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. What I will say, though, is that again, it's incredible. So the idea of the security deposit replacement, now that it's starting to get proven out in the in the market and we found such great product market fit, now is the time that we're seeing a bunch of investors, looking around saying, Oh, who else can we invest in? You know, what other new businesses are here? And to me, the honest to God answer is that you've missed the boat. I mean, uh, you know, we're now three years down the line of if you started doing that business today, you also best case scenario, you're not going to accept your first customer for a year. Mm -hmm. And then you have the next couple of years to learn what we've already learned. So the competitive advantage you have of just getting, A product through is amazing and if you can be as lucky as we are to also push through a product that people people really want you honestly just kind of become unstoppable those same exact challenges that made it difficult in the first six nine twelve months are now the things that work to our advantage I mean if a new competitor came up in a space where we're already operating the insurance regulators are gonna say Why, why are you necessary? Why should we approve your product? We already know this Rhino like insurance program. We think it's wonderful. You know, we're, we're requesting landlords to use this Rhino program. So, you know, why are you trying to work against this kind of progress that we're now completely in support of? To me, like, I think that's part of it. And then I think the other thing is just bigger and bigger challenges. I think that, you know, over the last 15 years, being able to build this framework of, you know, when I was in middle school and high school, the internet was being built as we know it. And then social networking and kind of the core plumbing of the internet was the first kinds of stages. And then, you know, how do we build these businesses like Uber and and Airbnb that kind of allow people to spend their money more flexibly, commit to things in less like long-term cycles. But now that that's all done, I think it's time for us as, as people building startups to look up a little bit and say, you know, not only should we be building things for good, you know, there's a lot of ways to apply technology that we don't necessarily feel great about when we get home after a long day of work. Um, But how can we solve challenges that are, you know, again, not rocket science, not necessarily even huge technological advances, but how can we dig in a little bit deeper and solve problems that honestly will improve the lives of millions of people? And I think things like insurance, real estate, healthcare, nutrition, honestly, a number of these startups are just asking to be started. I have friends that are starting um, a company this year based on menopause, for example. You know, couldn't be any more different than, you know, what we're doing here at Rhino, but they're finding similar things, which is just, wow, we've all been focused on, you know, these internet problems and there are so many communities that are being underserved by the information they're able to receive by being priced out of affordable products that can help them. You know um, we work with another um, kind of a sister company of ours and this uh, Kairos family of, of uh, incubated companies is a company called Little Spoon as well which does uh, nutrition for baby food. Same thing it's just you know Gerber baby food is fast it's convenient but how can we build healthier alternatives, um, but still scale it into this thing where millions of parents can reliably receive nutritional products for their children every single week? Um, that you know makes again not it's it's not a make or break thing in a person's life to have healthy baby food or necessarily save a few hundred dollars in a security deposit. But there's so many places like this where yes, it's harder to get a business off the ground than just you know, running rails new on a new SaaS startup or something. (laughs) But, you know, if we can build on the shoulders of things like, you know, all these logistics companies that now exist and um, really apply it towards something that's helping people, that to me is the not just underserved marketplace, but the, the place where technology has not yet been applied. And there are just millions and millions of ideas just waiting to be, you know, taken advantage of.
0: Well, Brian, you've really opened my eyes to where you can build a tech startup. There are so many industries out there that are ripe for new technology. So this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you being on Kodish. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodesh is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.